Thank you for choosing this podcast from the Calling Community Church. As a Christ-centered community, our mission is to create space for all people to experience the compassionate love of the Father and the calling He has for their life. Please enjoy the message today recorded live inside the Wilson Arts Auditorium at Platte County High School in Platte City, Missouri. Good morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Leviticus chapter 22. That's in the Old Testament. It's the third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 22. And as as, uh, Justin already told you, we're going to, we're continuing our series of the names of the Lord. And the name today is Jehovah Mekadashkim. And it means the Lord who sanctifies you. So Leviticus 22, starting with verse 31. Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So in this passage, we see um, God gives two commands to his people. The first one is, keep my commands and follow them. Now, the book of Leviticus was given uh, after the Israelites left Egypt, after Moses brought them out from Egypt, and they went out to Mount Sinai, and God gave them the whole Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and all that. And Leviticus is a whole bunch of laws. So if you've ever read Leviticus, you'll see it has in there laws about what to eat, uh, how to dress, rules about the Sabbath. And God, in the middle of that, takes this pause and says to Moses that people must keep my commands and follow them. And then He also gives another command in the next verse, do not profane my holy name. So in verse 32, it says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Okay, or as I read out of NIV, I'm the Lord who makes you holy. That's what sanctify means, to make holy. But you notice in here three times he says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord. And that's the basis for giving these commandments. That's the basis for God saying, you must keep my commands and you must not profane my holy name because I am the Lord. And if you were here last week, Pastor Brady talked about the name Adonai. And he told us that when you're reading in the Old Testament, if you see a capital L and a lowercase O-R-D, then that's what, how the translators indicate the word, the name Adonai, which means master. But if you see capital L, and then the font may be smaller, but it's all uppercase, all capital letters, O-R-D, that signifies that that's where the Lord's name is given. That's his personal name, Jehovah or Yahweh. And that's what we see in this passage. I am Jehovah. Do not profane my holy name. I am Jehovah who sanctifies you. 
I brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am Jehovah. So the name we're looking at is Jehovah Mekadashkin. Okay, and that, the root of that is the Kadash, which means it, it's where we get the word sanctify, holy, any form of those words in the Bible, sanctify, sanctification, holy, holiness, or the word saint, all come from that same root word, Kadash. When, when God is giving these two commandments here, and by the way, everywhere where the name Jehovah, the Kadash Kim, is used, it's the same sort of format. He tells the people, keep my Sabbaths, keep my commands, because... I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm the Lord who makes you holy. So he gives us an instruction, something to do, based on his character, his name. And you, you notice here that he says, um, in verse uh, 32, he says, do not profane my holy name. So God declares that his name is a holy name. And then uh, he says, I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. So the whole uh, basis of him giving these commands is his holiness. And when God talks about his holy name, when we talk about someone's name, we're talking about just the handle that we call them, right? Whatever. My name's Roy. You call me Roy. That's all it means. It's my name. It doesn't really mean anything. But when God talks about his name, it talks about his whole being, all his characteristics, everything that makes God who he is. So when he talks about his holy name, he's talking about all his attributes, not just the word that is his name. God is holy, and his name is holy, and he is holy. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of God. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, which are angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another... What were they saying as they flew around worshiping God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, is Jehovah, God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation 4, 8, John sees a vision of heaven and he sees much the same thing. He sees these angels flying around. Uh, this is Revelation 4, 8. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God's most glorious attribute is his holiness. It's the only attribute that is ever repeated like this, holy, holy, holy. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, love, love, love is God, or Grace, grace, grace is God, or justice, justice, justice is God. But twice we see the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. 
it's the glory of all his attributes. It brings all his attributes together. Uh, God's love is a holy love. His goodness is a holy goodness. Psalm 98.1 tells us that his arm, which is a poetic way of talking about his power, his arm is his holy arm. Psalm 105.42 tells us that his promise is a holy promise. And Psalm 145.17 says all his works are holy. Holiness balances God's attributes. Without holiness, power would just degenerate into cruelty. Can we see that with people, right? People who have power, unchecked power, most of the time become cruel. Uh, Goodness without holiness becomes just kind of sappy sentimentalism. Justice without holiness becomes revenge. And omniscience uh, without holiness is just a way to kind of trick people, right? Because you know more than they do, so you can outsmart them. Holiness, being holy or being sanctified, the uh, primary meaning means to be set apart. So there's two aspects of God's holiness. As a being, he is set apart, which means he is far above and beyond creation. He's far above and beyond us. He's completely different from us. He's a completely different kind of being, and he's so far above us that we can't, we can't even begin to comprehend. And we wouldn't be able to know him at all if he hadn't revealed himself to us. But in his conduct, holiness means that he is completely sinless and untainted by sin. So morally, holiness means sinlessness. And God is sinful. His holiness is perfect, unpolluted, freedom from all evil. He's never sinned, and he never will sin. And he can't tolerate or approve of sin because of his holiness. In fact, because of God's holiness, he hates sin. Now, I know we're not supposed to use the word hate, right? When you see the bumper stickers, hate is not a family value. But I tell you, hate goes with love. Uh, If you love your children, you hate anyone who's trying to hurt those children. If you love unborn babies, you hate abortion. If you love your spouse, you hate anything that tries to take your spouse from you. It's two sides of the same coin. Okay, now, I'm not telling you that you should go out and hate people. What does the Bible tell us about our enemies? We should love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us. But I'm trying to help you understand that because of God's holiness, he hates sin. Listen to some of these verses. Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. This is the Father speaking about the Son. God the Father speaking about Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, it says... There are six things that the Lord hates, 
seven that are an abomination to him. So you can read that. I'm not going to go through the whole list. But the first one is a haughty look or pride. Pride. God hates pride. And the second one is a lying tongue. Those are two, the first two things on the list that God hates. God hates idolatry. Jeremiah 44, 4, God says that idolatry is the detestable thing that I hate. This is what God says about false worship. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14, the Israelites were going through worship. They were coming to the temple, giving offerings, making sacrifices. Uh, they were keeping all the festivals. But the problem was it was just outward. Their heart wasn't in it. They weren't following God with their hearts. And here's what the Lord says. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So God hates sin. And if he stopped hating sin, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be holy. God hates sin so much that he can't even stand the sight of it. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God is infinite, and his hate, hatred of sin, his holiness is infinite. Just like his love and mercy are infinite, his hatred of sin is infinite. And he doesn't just hate bad sins, all right? We tend to, uh, especially when we think about ourselves, right? We know we're sinners, but we don't really do the bad sins, right? We might tell a little white lie, but we're not liars, right? But God hates all sin. He, he doesn't hate the bad sins and overlook the little sins. Amen. Now, this, the idea of God hating sin or hating something is not just theoretical. It's not just philosophy. It has a practical outworking. And the practical expression of God's hatred for sin is what the Bible calls his wrath or anger. And again, we don't like to think a lot about God's wrath, but the Bible has a lot to say about the subject. God's wrath is mentioned 168 times in the Bible. His anger is mentioned 153 times. Wrath and anger together, over 50 times. God's fury, 16 times. Uh, Lamentations 4.11 says, The Lord has poured out his fierce anger. And that phrase is used 15 more times in the Bible. Indignation is used over 30 times. The Lord will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. That's Romans 2, verses 6 through 8. The Bible talks about God's burning anger. Nahum 1, 2 through 6 says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? Psalm 7, 11 through 12 says, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. 
Psalm 11:6 says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Because the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Revelation 4:19 says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And we could go on and on. We also see examples in the Bible of God's wrath being poured out. In Genesis chapter 6, God looked down on mankind and saw that every thought of their heart was only evil continually. So he sent a flood to destroy the whole world. In Genesis 18, he saw that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities of the plain were wicked. We sent fire and brimstone to destroy those cities. In Acts chapter 12, uh, King Herod got up and gave a speech. And his speech was so eloquent that the people said, Oh, this is the voice of a man, of a God, and not a man. And because he didn't give glory to God, God struck him down immediately. Well, if the Bible talks so much about God's wrath, uh, why, why do we have a hard time with it? Why do we not like to think about it? Why does it seem unfair to us? I think one of the reasons is because God's wrath is not like what we think of as wrath. It's not what we've experienced or what we've participated in, right? Our wrath is not a holy wrath. We get mad because someone offends us, or uh, we don't get our way, we're frustrated, our kids get on our nerves, right? That's what we think of when we hear anger or wrath. But God's wrath is not like that. It's not some temporary loss of self-control. It's not a childish tantrum, or a fit, or selfishness, or just because he's frustrated. God's anger is his righteousness reacting to unrighteousness. His wrath is righteous. Everything he does is righteous, and therefore his wrath is righteous. His anger is righteous. Psalm 119.75 says, O Lord, your judgments are righteous. 2 Timothy 4.8 calls Jesus the Lord, the righteous judge. Revelation 16.7 O Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Revelation 19.2, his judgments are true and righteous. Righteous just means right. They're not sinful. They're not a loss of self-control. Again, it's just his righteousness reacting to unrighteousness. And God's wrath, we, I gave a couple examples of his wrath that we've already seen in history, but ultimately his wrath will find its expression after this life in the place we call hell. Now, Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible, and he described it as a place that is just terrible beyond any description. He described it as a place of darkness and separation, and it's He talked about people being cast into outer darkness. He talked about it as a place of fire and a place of weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus talked about people being cast in the outer darkness where the fire is not quenched and where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. God's wrath is also eternal. Daniel 12 talks about uh, people, the, the resurrection. Many who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to grace and everlasting contempt. And then Jesus in Matthew 25, when he talked about the judgment of the sheep and the goats, he said, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's the same word. The word eternal or eternal punishment and eternal life, it's the same thing. Heaven is eternal. It lasts forever. Hell is eternal. It lasts forever. And people who die without Christ will suffer the pains and torments of hell forever. God's holiness demands that. Now, if that was all the Bible had to say to us, uh, that would be very depressing. We'd be hopeless. There'd be no hope for us, but the Bible does not stop there. And that's why today we're looking at Jehovah Makadishkim, the Lord who sanctifies you, the Lord who makes you holy. So first of all, we need to understand that we're sinful. Uh, Psalm 51.5 says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So the Bible tells us very clearly that we're all sinners. We're born as sinners. We have a sin nature. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're already sinners. Think of it like an apple tree. All right, when that apple tree sprouts up and it's small and it takes years before it grows apples, it's still an apple tree, right? It doesn't become an apple tree when the apple comes out. But it grows apples because it's an apple tree. And that's the way we are as sinners. We don't become sinners when we sin, but we sin because we are sinners by nature. Um, Colossians 1.21 says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Ephesians 2.3 says, we all, lived, we all once lived among the sons of disobedience in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what everyone is. By nature, we're children of wrath. That means we're deserving of God's wrath. And even though we do good works, those good works have no merit with God. They don't add anything to our salvation. We cannot contribute to our salvation. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us are like an unclean thing, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So the good things we do, and we can do good things. We can do things that are morally good. We can help people. We can give money to charities. And those are good morally and socially, but in God's sight, to have any uh, ability to please him or to earn salvation, he says they're like filthy rags. And we all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So we need to turn, because we're sinful, 
and we're objects of God's wrath, we need to turn to the Lord who sanctifies us. So I want to talk about sanctification for the rest of my time here. There are three aspects to sanctification. One is what we normally call salvation. So we call that positional sanctification. That's our position with God, our standing with God. When you accept Christ as your Savior, when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, He sanctifies you. He makes you holy. And we are, at that point, holy before God in our standing. Uh, we're, he redeems us. Jesus redeems us. We can't redeem ourselves. Uh, we're forgiven of every sin. We're declared righteous. And God sees us as justified and purified completely. We're completely holy. And that is because of the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 10.10, by his will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Hebrews 13.12, therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. We are sanctified, we are made holy in God's sight through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his blood. He took our sin upon him and he gave us his righteousness. It's the great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, but you were washed he gives a list of sins, and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. And this comes not by any work that we have done, but by Jesus, by what the work that he's done. And all we can do is repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ and trust him to make us holy. That's why in the Bible we're referred to as saints. 61 times in the New Testament, believers are called saints. And it's always about people who are living and are believers in Christ. It's not people who are dead and did some miracles and were exceptional people. The Corinthians were called saints. And if you read Corinthians, you'll see that they were some of the most worldly people uh, that are spoken about in the Bible. So believing in Christ makes us saints. Uh, we are redeemed, not by ourselves, but we're redeemed in Christ. We're not accepted of ourselves, we're accepted in Christ. We're not righteous in ourselves, we're righteous in Christ. So. The Bible talks about God's wrath and how we're objects of God's wrath. And in 1 John chapter 3, and I would venture that almost everyone in here knows John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then it goes on to say, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And verse 18 says, whoever believes is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. That's what separates us. Do you believe in Christ or do you not believe? If you believe, you're not condemned. If you don't believe, you're condemned already. And verse 36 of the same chapter says that if you don't believe on the name of the Son of God, that God's wrath is abiding on you right now. Right now. But Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We don't have to dread God's wrath. Jesus took his wrath for us. So, first of all, there's positional sanctification, or what we normally call salvation, or being born again. But then, the Bible talks a lot about uh, practical sanctification, which is our daily walk. So, in position with God, we're holy. But as we walk out day by day, we're not that holy, are we? We sin a lot. And when we do that, uh, 1 John tells us that we should confess our sins and he'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But practical sanctification is a walking with Jesus day by day. And in our practical sanctification, we should be getting more and more like Jesus as time goes on. We should be less like the world and more like Christ. He is the sanctifier. Uh, So we do that by turning our back on worldly things and turning toward godly things. All right? We, and positional sanctification or salvation is completely a work of God. We don't add anything to that. There's nothing we can do to earn favor with God or to earn our own salvation. That's all of Jesus. But practical sanctification, our walk with Christ, we participate with him. Listen to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. That's a command to believers. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because... It is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So it's you working to become more holy through the power of Christ and Christ making you more holy. It's both. It's Jesus working in you and it's you working in yourself. And then there is ultimate sanctification, which is someday we'll be in heaven with God. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. What we will be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Someday, there's going to be a resurrection, and we'll all be raised from the dead. The righteous will go to eternal life, and the unrighteous to eternal destruction. For us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. We have nothing to worry about. And in Revelation chapter 20, it says, He'll wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more pain or sickness or sorrow or death or crying because the former things are passed away and everything is made new.
I just want to leave you with this thought. And the worship team can come up now if you want to. Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed unto people once to die, and after that, the judgment. Those who are trusting in Christ are sanctified, made holy by him. We have nothing to fear. Those who have not been sanctified by Christ will have nothing to look forward to but God's wrath. So let me ask you this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Do you have a good answer for that? Do you know that you've been sanctified by Christ? Are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? If not, today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today is the day to make sure of that. And if you're not sure, you can come down here and talk to Brady or Justin or me, and we'd be happy to show you how to do that. If you know that you're saved, if you know you've been made holy by Christ, how's your daily walk going? I just want to encourage you to keep pressing on. Like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I forget everything that's behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the mark for the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. All right, thank you. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts, that if there's anyone here who's not saved, Lord, you would convict them and cause them to be saved today. I pray for those of us who are saved that we would not ignore the idea of your wrath, but that it would motivate us to love other people more and to be more like you and to spread your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for choosing this podcast from the Calling Community Church. We hope it leaves you encouraged. If you need more information about the church or want to speak to someone about prayer or faith in Jesus, please visit our website, thecallingcommunitychurch.com and fill out the contact form. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a blessed day.